And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Hey everybody, welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show. Tim McMaster here. Baseball is back, at least regular season baseball. A great opening weekend in the majors. All sorts of fun stuff, as there always is when baseball makes its return. The Blue Jays had a seven-run comeback on opening day up in Canada. Big moment, really, for the whole country. Benches cleared in Washington, D.C. and at Wrigley Field. The Padres pulled Yu Darvish and Sean Manaya from back-to-back starts while each was throwing no-hitters. It's crazy stuff. We also, of course, had Red Sox and Yankees in the Bronx. What a way to get going. And also, as I introduce Ken Rosenthal to the podcast, as always, Ken, the Phillies and Mets both off to good starts as well. We're recording this on Sunday afternoon. Their Sunday games haven't quite been wrapped up yet, but both starting the season, uh, Mets 3-0, Phillies 2-0. They'll open a three-game series in Philadelphia on Monday night. You'll be in the dugout on FS1 for that opener. That should be fun. It should be, and I want to start off by saying, Tim, we're not going to talk only about East teams this year. I cover all the oh, I'm teams. I'm glad you're getting that out of the way. And we're going to get it out of the way right now. We cover everyone. I'm going to San Diego next weekend, Chicago the weekend. I'm sorry, Minnesota the weekend after that. We will talk about all these teams. We will cover all these teams. So I do not want to hear it. Now, on to the Phillies and Mets. It is going to be interesting to see them play for the first time because – Frankly, they started off against lesser clubs this weekend, the Phillies against the A's, and then the Mets against the Nationals. And if you've watched and paid attention this weekend, some of the rebuilding quote-unquote teams have not performed all that well. I'm talking about the A's, the Nationals, the Orioles, the Pirates. You've seen this time and time again. And these are the teams that generally at this time of year are at their best because they kind of catch other clubs by surprise. Well, at least to this point, not happening. But on to the Phillies and Mets. For one thing, I find it really intriguing to see Showalter and Girardi back against each other. For years, they were against each other with the Yankees and the Orioles. Of course, Girardi with the Yankees, the Orioles with Buck Showalter. And these are two of the game's best tacticians, and they bring something to this rivalry that kind of elevates it. The other thing that elevates it is the improvements both teams have made. Of course, we know what the Mets have done, spent all that money. Escobar, Kana, Marte, right down the line. We can go to Bassett and everyone else. They're an exciting bunch. They're a very deep team now, which they weren't before. And they're going to be a threat. Oh, guess what, Tim? I forgot one guy the Mets added. Max Scherzer. They're going to be a threat (laughs) the entire season. Phillies, too, have made some improvements. Schwarber and Castellanos, some guys in the bullpen as well. And what's intriguing about the Phillies to me is the notion, yes, that they are going to be an offensive-type team with defensive flaws. I don't know that there's much question about that looking at their roster. 
they seem kind of undaunted by it. And in talking with someone from the Yankees, when I was doing the game Saturday in Yankee Stadium before the game, this person mentioned to me, you know what? Yes, they're going to have deficiencies defensively, but Dave Dombrowski, the guy who runs the Phillies, went out after the lockout, saw which players he could get, and got the best players he could. Schwarber and Castellanos offensively are going to be quite good, and that alone should make the Phillies better. Will they have days where they don't catch the ball? I think that's pretty obvious. But at the same time, they'll have days when Schwarber and Castellanos are offensive forces. So while at times they might be difficult to watch, they're going to be pretty good. And I would expect that that's going to be a case the whole season with both the Phillies and Mets and the Braves in the NL East. We talk about the AL East with the four teams. The NL East really has three, and I would almost include the Marlins in there simply because of their starting pitching, though offensively they're not at the level of those other clubs, nor are they as far as the quality of their bullpen. Bottom line is, Tim, I'm looking forward to this game tomorrow night. I'm looking forward to watching these two teams against each other and other clubs all season long. Yeah, and back to the American League East. You mentioned that you were there on Saturday for the call um, in the Bronx. The big news out of the Bronx on Friday was that Aaron Judge was offered a big contract and he turned it down. He is not going to negotiate during the season. So it looks like he's probably heading towards free agency. And Brian Cashman took kind of an extra step in actually releasing the numbers of the offer, which you don't always see, Ken. No, you don't always see that. And that was a bit surprising to say the least. He says he did it because the numbers would get out anyway. That's true. But at the same time, you hardly ever see a team do that. And in this case, in my opinion, the Yankees did that and Cashman did it because they were proud of their offer. They wanted to show the public we made a legitimate attempt here, seven years at $30.5 million a year in his free agent years, on top of his remaining arbitration year, which will be either $17 million or $21 million, or if they do settle somehow, somewhere in between. Yes, that was a very good offer. Yes, Judge rejected it. I kind of wrote his perspective on Saturday, just kind of describing why he might have looked at it the way he did. And one thing fans, in my opinion, should understand, I know it's easy to say for me, for anyone else, what is the problem? 213 million, actually 230 plus with the extra year. What exactly does a player want? But you have to remember, and you might not like it, but you should remember this, that just like in all of our jobs, we compare our salaries to our peers, the players do exactly the same thing. And the most vivid example of this I can remember was when Francisco Lindor signed his extension with the Mets, $341 million. Why the extra $1 million? Because Tatis had gotten 340 Now, you might say, well, Aaron Judge wants Mike Trout average value, $36 million, free agent years, and that is somewhat correct. That's about what he asked for in that range. And you might say, well, he's not Trout, and he's not. There's no question about that. But he also sees Anthony Rendon at $35 million a year, Lindor at $34.1 million a year. And he says, well, wait a second. I know I'm older than those guys. I know they play premium defensive positions, but I do this for the New York Yankees in the biggest pressure cooker in the sport, and I do it really on an extremely high level, in some ways a higher level than those two guys, at least offensively. So that's where he's coming from. You can agree, you can disagree, but in a sense, Aaron Judge is acting no differently 
than any of us would act in the same situation, saying to himself, well, if that guy wants this, I want that because I am X. So we'll see how this plays out. Clearly, he took a risk. There's no question about that, Tim. But at the same time, it reflects his own confidence in himself. As he said the other day, anything can happen any day physically to anyone. So I'll take my shot. He's seven months away from free agency. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. Hey, confident guy. Love to see that. And we will certainly see how it all plays out. All right, let's move on to the mailbag. Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. Please leave a voicemail. As always, great questions this week. If you want to get involved down the road, you can either call us or email us. The phone number is 646-543-7072. If you want to use the email, it's tabaseballshow at gmail.com. And to prove your point, Ken, we are going to start with a question about Midwest teams. We're away from the coast right from the start. This one's from Dan Zerby, who is a uh, frequent question asker here on the podcast. He says, hey, Ken, is there some sort of swap between the Guardians and Cardinals involving Shane Bieber and Tyler O'Neill that makes sense for both sides? I'm sure O'Neill is very vital to St. Louis, but I won't claim to have enough familiarity with them to know if they'd be okay without him. I do know they need pitching. Cleveland has depth, and Cleveland could obviously use a guy like O'Neill. They're both in similar contract situations at this point. What do you think? Dan, I actually love this question, and it's one of those things that you think about and you say, okay, this is not a trade proposal like many trade proposals that writers and fans and even teams make that seems kind of ridiculous. This has some logic to it. Now, both players, as you mentioned, are same service category, three-plus years of service. Bieber's making $6 million this year, O'Neal $3.775 million. So it's certainly fair to ask, okay, what about a straight-up trade? A couple of years ago, when Bieber was at his finest, the Cardinals would not have made this trade, right? O'Neill had yet to emerge. Right now, even though starting pitchers are much more valuable than corner outfielders, I'm not sure the Cardinals would make this trade because of the year O'Neill had last year, top 10 MVP, 5.4 F4, just brilliant all the way around. And Bieber, on the other hand, had a shoulder strain that sidelined him for more than three months. He's back now. Velo was down a little bit in his opening day start. I don't know that you should read much into that. But right now, O'Neill is perhaps the better bet. So it's a great question, but I don't know that it's exactly fair right now. It would be interesting to ask both GMs if they would do it. They would never answer us, of course, because we don't talk about other teams' players. But at the same time, that's the kind of intriguing swap that makes the game so great, honestly. It's just fun to think about. Yeah, certainly. I love it when it's two major leaguers going opposite directions and not just a bunch of prospects. The, the major league trade is is great. Um, all right, we're going to go to voicemail for the next one. I mentioned the benches clearing in a couple different places this weekend. This relates to that. Hi, Ken and Tim. This is Tom Cohen from Queens, New York. Big fan of the show. It's incredibly frustrated to see both Francisco Lindor and Pete Alonso take pitches to the head this weekend. Well, I personally don't think either pitch was intentional. There has to be something the league can do to prevent this and other situations from escalating into season-long cycles of retaliation beating. What do you guys think about a rule that immediately ejects and then suspends a pitcher five games paid for hitting a batter anywhere above the neck? Have you heard any discussion about anything similar? I think it's way too dangerous to allow anyone to pitch without consequence. And when nothing's done, teams take matters into their own hands 
Do you think something like a rule, a rule like this could be effective in giving teams a sense that justice is served so they don't have to retaliate? Thanks a lot. Have a great day. Tim, you want to go first? I think you would have a hard time getting it past the Players Association for sure, but I also think that there's a way to hit players on purpose. And, and I think generally, I won't even say generally, when guys hit players in the head, it's never on purpose. Let's Baseball players do pitch inside on purpose and maybe look for contact. It's lower. So it's hard for me to see a guy getting you know a fine or a suspension when a ball gets away. But it, it's an interesting question. I agree with Tim. And the problem here, as always in these situations, is determining intent. A player or pitcher might not mean to do that, and ultimately it might happen, and that could happen even to the very best pitchers at times, though it is pretty rare. The problem in the Mets National Series, from what I could see, was that no one on the Mets thought it was intentional what the Nationals were doing, but their younger pitchers were incapable of controlling the ball inside when they went in. That is something that, while it might not be intentional, always, always ticks off hitters and teams because if you can't do it their point often is you shouldn't be in the major leagues and if you can't do it then don't go in like that so that is the point I would make on this I don't know that it will ever be formally adopted as a rule because you can't say even if an accident occurs that's something that you got to be penalized for I don't know that that would ever happen but at the same time We have a lot of young pitchers in the game. We have people who are rushed to the major leagues, and this is, at times, the consequence. Something else that was interesting, the McCutcheon hit by pitch. That was Saturday, I believe, and you saw what he said. He said, hey, if you're going to hit me, you hit me on the first pitch. You don't throw a ball, a slider, I believe it was, away and then come in. That's not how you do it. So from what McCutcheon says... You can understand from a fan's perspective that players have their own view of these things and what is proper and what is not. It's not codified anywhere. It's not written. It's sort of an unwritten rule, I guess you could say. But the two things here that apply are what McCutcheon's saying is you're going to do it, do it right away. And what the Mets were saying with the Nationals, if you can't control the ball in, don't throw the ball in. Players generally have a way of policing it themselves, even in an era of harsher discipline for these things and kind of an era of unforgiving discipline. They don't really tolerate this stuff anymore. But the best answer is the answer that Alonzo gave Saturday night. When he got hit two days before, he responded with a grand slam. And when I started my career in Baltimore, Earl Weaver was no longer there. But the lessons of Earl Weaver, the legacy of Earl Weaver, was still very much under discussion, and he never advocated his own players going after the other team in a beanball-type war. What he wanted was the kind of thing that Alonso did, what Frank Robinson used to do. You knock me down, I'll take you deep. And that way you avoid ejections, you avoid suspensions, you avoid the possibility of getting hurt, you settle it on the field. Alonzo hit the grand slam. Lindor hit his first home run of the season today as we record this on Sunday. So they both got some sort of revenge after getting hit in the head. All right, next question is from Darian. He says, why have the Marlins been unable to close any trades for bullpen help or a competent center fielder? Darian, I don't know when you sent in that question, but they did make a trade for bullpen help. Cole Sulser and Tanner Scott from the Orioles, and really all they gave up was a competitive balance pick which is, I believe, in the 60s. I thought it was a ridiculous trade by the Orioles. If you're trading still, 
in year whatever of their rebuild. I'm always losing count. <laughs> You're trading major league relievers for a competitive balance pick. I know Sulzer and Scott might not be all-stars, but they're competent major league relievers, or at least close to that at the very least. So that trade did address their bullpen to some degree. Once they get Dylan Floro back to health, they'll be in a better position there. The better question is why they didn't get a center fielder. Because they're going with Jesus Sanchez there. He's not a natural center fielder. And this is a team that wants to compete, has taken some steps to compete with some of their signings. Avisel Garcia, Jorge Soler. But yes, they've got a hole in center field right now, at least from a pure defensive standpoint, because Sanchez is not a pure defensive center fielder. I would expect if they stay reasonably in contention, they'll try to address that need. Ramon Laureano is the obvious choice once his suspension for PEDs ends. But at the same time, right now they're in this status quo mode. And if I were a Marlins fan, I'd be a little upset about it too, because this was a glaring thing that they had to address and they did not. They do have a lot of young outfielders coming. We know that. But at the same time, hey, let's play the Major League season too. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. All right, another fan unhappy with the way his team has gotten things done on the trade market is Tony. He says, how on earth were the Yankees not able to acquire Manaya, considering how little the Padres ended up giving up? How little is in the eye of the beholder, of course. Now, it wasn't a massive return. And why? Because Sean Manaya is a one-year guy earning almost $10 million. He's at $9.75 million. And the Yankees, as much criticism as they take for not spending enough, and in some respects that can be a fair criticism by their fans, their luxury tax payroll right now is at $262 million, according to Fangraphs. So that's approaching the third tier, 270 and they're going to want to leave room to do some things later in the season. Manaya, maybe in their estimation, wasn't worth that kind of investment, both in players and in money. The Padres did give up... a player that the A's like and a guy I heard good things about, Angelus, Uribeel Angelus, he can hit, but at the same time, it wasn't the Matt Chapman type return or the Matt Olson type return. No one would ever suggest that, but it was never going to be because Manaya is a one-year guy. The Yankees, I am sure, will be active at the deadline if they feel their pitching, starting pitching is not good enough. One thing that became quickly apparent in the two games that I saw this weekend, and of course we're taping this before Sunday Night Baseball on Sunday night, their bullpen, even without Zach Britton, is quite strong. And it's impressive to see what they're rolling out there. Now right now they have a 16-man bullpen, so it's a little bit deeper than it's going to be once we get back to 
the normal roster size, but that is an impressive strength that they have. And if they can figure out their starting pitching, if Severino comes back and things settle in a little bit, they'll be in a good spot there. Yeah, that was eye-opening in that series a little bit to me was that the Yankees just have all these arms to go to. And then the Red Sox in the opener and extra innings had Ryan Brazier out there for, for the most important inning of the season in one game. And, and that's the guy you have out there is a little little surprising. All right, next question's a two-parter, Ken. It's from Gabriel. Uh, he says, any information regarding the Atlanta Braves being finished in the market for now? Obviously, with Luke Jackson most likely having to need Tommy John surgery, do the Braves feel like they've already done enough as far as that goes? And then he adds, Dansby Swanson is set to have a showdown after this year modeling the Freddie Freeman saga. Obviously, Swanson is not as big a f- face of the franchise as Freddie, although he is from Atlanta and all of that stuff. But are there any negotiations going on between Swanson and the front office? I'll answer the second question first. I don't believe there are current negotiations. I don't believe even there were negotiations before opening day in a real serious manner. You raise a fair point. Swanson has the same representatives as Freddie Freeman, the Excel Sports Management Group. And as we all know, it didn't go all that well between Excel and the Braves regarding Freddie Freeman. Now you can blame either side. There's been a lot of talk about this, a lot written about this. And frankly, I have not written about it because it's such a he said, she said, and such a vehement he said, she said, that I'm not sure even what I believe. So in any case... Swanson is different than Freddie Freeman, quite clearly. He is not a homegrown player, although they did acquire him early in his career in a trade from the Diamondbacks. He is not as good a player as Freddie Freeman. There are going to be other free agent shortstops available. One might be Carlos Correa, a player who at least the Braves discussed at some point during the offseason. Another could be Trey Turner. He is eligible for free agency, did not receive an offer from the Dodgers before the season started. And finally, Xander Bogarts, who might not be a shortstop long-term. His defensive metrics have not been good in recent years. It's as simple as that. But the Braves will have choices if they want to go away from Swanson. As to the other question about whether the Braves are done with regard to their bullpen, they made quite a few moves to bolster that bullpen, McHugh, Jansen, etc. And right now their payroll is at $184 million. That's their cash payroll. That's their biggest in history by a long shot. Now, they won the World Series last year. They made a ton of money. We all know that. But they, in my view, or my estimation, likely will want to leave themselves some room at the deadline to see exactly where they are with the bullpen as things progress. Teams have to let things play out to a certain degree. Now, you saw Jan McCaffrey's story perhaps in The Athletic yesterday about Heim Bloom, the Red Sox chief baseball officer, saying the Red Sox are not opposed to an early trade to address the deficiency that Tim just mentioned, that bullpen question. But at the same time, those trades are rare. The Braves have proven under Alex Anthopoulos they are a force at the deadline, and they will be again if indeed the bullpen proves to be a significant area of need. Next question comes from George. He says, I was wondering if you could fill me in on the thinking behind how lineups are now put together. I was always in the belief that you put your best hitter at the number three slot in the lineup with the idea that he is more likely to drive in the hitters on base that get on in front of him. I've seen in articles mention how teams are now putting their best hitter at number two. Why is that? As a Red Sox fan, I would think that Devers would be 
best served with runners in front of him batting third or cleanup. What is your opinion on the matter as it pertains to the Sox and baseball as a whole? This is an interesting question, and it strikes to the heart of line of construction and how significant it is. If you talk to statistical analysts, they will tell you, eh, not all that significant. The sequence doesn't matter all that much. What does matter, and the reason you put your better hitters up higher, is because you want those guys getting the most plate appearances. That makes a ton of sense. But in general, how you stack them, it doesn't necessarily play out any differently one way or the other. Now, granted, you want better hitters supporting other better hitters so they all see pitches, but again, the way statistical analysts see it, it's not that big a deal. But when we talk about line of construction and the two-spot in particular, I go back to Tony La Russa and the way he has run his team and put his lineups together from the time he was the manager of the White Sox in the early 80s. He has always valued the number two spot, not as a place for someone to move the ball over, move the runners over, and just kind of flick the ball here and there. He wanted, and the word he used, was damage. So you go back to the early 80s, he had Carlton Fisk hitting second for the White Sox. And you go right through his career. Dave Henderson with the A's, with the Cardinals, this was really prominent. Larry Walker at times, Edgar Renteria, Jim Edmonds, Carlos Beltran, Matt Holliday. There were a whole host of guys that he liked in that number two spot. And obviously, if that player can do damage, get on, it opens things up for the rest of the lineup as well. So there is value to doing that. And the Red Sox, in doing it with Devers, are basically taking that same approach. They've got Bogarts and J.D. Martinez behind him. So if Devers does something good, home run, double, single, whatever it might be, things could start clicking with the others as well. So there is logic to using your better players in the number two spot, and it's not simply to get the more played appearances, though that is part of it, no question. And it works even better when you have a lineup as deep as the Red Sox, too. Yes, you mentioned three, exactly. four, and then you have Trevor Story, five, and it kind of just goes on and on. Uh, all right, next question comes from uh, north of the border in Canada. It's from Thomas. He says, love listening to the show. My question is, I'm wondering if you have watched the Dave Steeb story from Dorktown. That's available on YouTube if anybody wants to go watch it. The run through his incredible career showing how dominant he was for a dreadful team all while garnering no Cy Young votes or personal awards using advanced metrics we see today. I wonder if a veterans committee may ever consider his career in a different light and enshrine him in the Hall of Fame. Now, Ken, I will say a little factually off here. He was a seven-time All-Star. He was fourth in the Cy Young once. He was in the top 10 a couple other times, I think. So he did get personal awards and he did get votes. But to the main point here from Thomas— um, should he get more credit now with advanced metrics? Thomas has a point. And I hadn't really thought about this, but then I looked at the numbers a little bit, and Steve, from an advanced metrics perspective, does look better than otherwise he might. He, among pitchers who were born in the 1950s, he's third in war. Jay Jaffe made this point on fan graphs. I did not realize it. So he's third in war behind Burt Blylevin and Frank Tanana among pitchers born in the 1950s. The highest war among starting pitchers in the 80s by far, including Jack Morris, who of course is in the Hall of Fame. You take this a little further, you look at ERA+. Plus. Now that is an ERA when adjusted to the parking league and how much it is above league average. So Mike Messina made the Hall of Fame 
with an ERA plus 23% above league average. Dave Steve is at 22% above. Now he threw about five, 600 fewer innings than Messina, but it's certainly a question that is worth raising. They're comparable. Andy Pettit, who some people believe should be in the Hall of Fame or will be one day, he was at 117, so that's 5% below Steve in terms of where they compared to the league. Jack Morris, ERA plus 105. That means he was only 5% above the league average, granted, with the most innings of all of those guys, about 1,000 more than Steve. Now, this was my problem with Jack Morris making the Hall of Fame. Not against Jack Morris. I love Jack Morris. I covered the 1991 Game 7. It was one of my all-time favorite games in one of my all-time favorite World Series. I get it. The opening day starts. The playoff performance. When he was good, he wasn't always good. But when he was good, it was elite. No question about it. He was an ace. But because that ERA wasn't as good as most Hall of Famers, in fact, his career ERA is the highest of any starting pitcher in the Hall, it was going to open the door for others. Others who might not be worthy or might be kind of borderline, but you'd have to look at it in a different light because Jack Morris is in the Hall. That's Dave Steeb. Do I look at Dave Steeb as a Hall of Famer? No. But based on the Jack Morris thing, the comp, you have to kind of give it some consideration. Now you can say to me, hey, just because the Hall and the voters made one mistake, actually the Veterans Committee made one mistake, doesn't mean you should make others. But at the same time, this is the question or the kind of question that arises. And this is why I was so sensitive to Morris as a Hall of Famer, because it opens it up for a whole host of other candidates. And when people say, ah, Hall of the very good, this is the kind of criticism that I understand. So that is how I see it. Dave Steeb, certainly from a Veterans Committee standpoint, does warrant consideration. A long look, frankly. But do I see him as a Hall of Famer, even though he's quite comparable to Messina in ERA Plus and those war statistics I gave about pitchers born in the 50s and how he fared against others in the 80s? I didn't see it, but I can see where others might. And that's even without Morris in the conversation. Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck T-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB show. 
All right. One more question. It comes from John. He says, with the new balance schedule starting in 2023, there will be fewer opportunities for teams to make up games postponed by bad weather. There will also be expanded playoffs. So it seems that the season will be going into the first week of November. Does Major League Baseball have any plans to start the season earlier or are they okay with the season always going into November? Either way, it's a problem for teams playing outside in cold weather cities. There's the option of having fewer off days during the regular season or playoffs, but I don't remember hearing anything during the new CBA negotiations about the number of off days for teams. It seems likely there will be many teams that will not play 162 games in 2023 and beyond because of the makeups. John, this is an excellent point that you're raising here, and I had not thought of it, to be perfectly honest, and you're absolutely right. When we go to a more balanced schedule, that means fewer games against division opponents who, in theory, are geographically closer and it makes makeup games that much more difficult against those teams that used to be playing a whole lot more. I have not heard anything about starting the season earlier, and with the expanded playoffs that we have this year, they weren't going to start earlier. It was going to start supposedly, well, before the lockout, March 31st. So I don't expect they will start earlier, but I wonder if perhaps they do try to add a couple of days in there simply because of the point you mentioned. I don't know that they will. The season consists of a certain number of days according to the CBA, and my understanding is that number of days, 186, has not changed. But it would behoove the league to at least look at that. And I wonder if that is something that's going to come up in the weeks, months ahead when the schedule is examined more closely. It's funny. One thing players wonder about, I had a player mention this to me two days ago, and fans wonder about, is why are Northeast and Northern teams starting in the Northeast and the North when the weather often is quite bad at this time of year? You can't have everybody starting in the West and the South, obviously, but it sometimes seems to me, too, that baseball could make more of an effort along these lines. The people who make up the schedule have an incredibly difficult job. It's incredibly complicated. And I know they may use formulas and whatever, but for whatever reason, it doesn't work out the way you think it should work out with regard to the warm weather climates. And I would imagine, though I have not asked anyone specifically this question, there's a reason for that. So far, I think we've avoided snow this year. I remember back to last year, Miguel Cabrera hitting the home run in the snow in Detroit. Um, always a possibility uh, with the season starting early. All right, great questions again. If you want to get involved next time around, you can call us at 646-543-7072. The email is tabaseballshow at gmail.com. Next up on the Athletic Baseball Show feed on Tuesday, Eduardo Perez visits Starkville after his first game with the new ESPN Sunday night baseball team. That's, of course, Red Sox Yankees on Sunday night. If you want to read all the great stuff going on at The Athletic, one of the best deals of the year going on right now, you can subscribe for $1 per month for six months at theathletic.com slash baseball show. Ken, enjoy Philadelphia Monday night. Tim, thanks very much. All right. Have a great week, everyone.
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.